Kate here, Saints. You're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Large Catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, Preface, through Part 1, Paragraph 77. The Preface A Christian, profitable, and necessary preface and faithful, serious encouragement from Dr. Martin Luther to all Christians, but especially to all pastors and preachers. They should daily exercise themselves in the Catechism, which is a short summary and epitome of the entire Holy Scriptures. They should always teach the Catechism. We have no small reasons for constantly preaching the Catechism, and for both desiring and begging others to teach it. For sadly, we see that many pastors and preachers are very negligent in this matter and slight both their office and this teaching. Some neglect the Catechism because of great and high art, giving their mind as they imagine to much higher matters, but others neglect it from sheer laziness and care for their bellies. They take no stand in this business than to act as pastors and preachers for their bellies' sake. They have nothing to do but to spend and consume their wages as long as they live, just as they used to do under the papacy. They now have everything they are to preach and teach placed before them abundantly, clearly, and easily in so many helpful books. These are truly sermons that preach themselves, sleep soundly, be prepared, and thesaurus, as they used to be called. Yet these preachers are not even godly and honest enough to buy these books or even when they have them to look at them or read them. Oh, they are completely shameful gluttons and servants of their own bellies. They are more fit to be swineherds and dog-tenders than caretakers of souls and pastors. These pastors are now released from the useless and burdensome babbling of the seven canonical hours of prayer. I wish that, instead of these, they would read each morning, noon, and evening only a page or two in the Catechism, the prayer book, the New Testament, or something else in the Bible. They should pray the Lord's Prayer for themselves and their parishioners. Then they might respond with honor and thanks to the gospel, by which they have been delivered from obvious burdens and troubles, and might feel a little shame. For like pigs and dogs, they take nothing more from the gospel than this lazy, deadly, shameful, worldly freedom. The common people also respect the gospel altogether too lightly, and we accomplish nothing special, even though we work diligently. What then would be achieved if we were as negligent and lazy as we were under the papacy? To this laziness, such preachers add the shameful vice and secret infection of security and contentment. In other words, many see the Catechism as a poor, common teaching, which they can read through once and immediately understand. They can throw the book into a corner and be ashamed to read it again. Yes, even among the nobility, one may find some clowns and penny-pinchers who say, A. There is no longer any need for either pastors or preachers. B. We have everything in books. And C. Everyone can easily learn it by himself. So they are happy to let the parishes rot and become empty. They let pastors and preachers worry and go hungry, just as crazy Germans are accustomed to do. For we Germans have such disgraceful people and must put up with them. 
But for myself, I say this. I am also a doctor and preacher. Yes, as learned and experienced as all the people who have such assumptions and contentment. Yet I act as a child who is being taught the catechism. Every morning, and whenever I have time, I read and say word for word the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, and such. I must still read and study them daily, yet I cannot master the catechism as I wish. But I must remain a child and pupil of the catechism, and am glad to remain so. Yet these delicate, refined fellows would in one reading promptly become doctors above all doctors, know everything, and need nothing. Well, this too is a sure sign that they despise both their office and the souls of the people. Indeed, they even despise God and his word. They do not have to fall. They have already fallen too horribly. They need to become children and begin to learn their alphabet, which they imagine they have long outgrown. Therefore, for God's sake, I beg such lazy bellies or arrogant saints to be persuaded and believe that they are truly, truly not so learned or such great doctors as they imagine. They should never assume that they have finished learning the parts of the catechism or know it well enough in all points, even though they think that they know it ever so well. For even if they know and understand the catechism perfectly, which however is impossible in this life, there are still many benefits and fruits to be gained if it is daily read and practiced in thought and speech. For example, the Holy Spirit is present in such reading, repetition, and meditation. He bestows ever new and more light and devoutness. In this way, the catechism is daily loved and appreciated better as Christ promises in Matthew 18.20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Besides, catechism study is a most effective help against the devil, the world, the flesh, and all evil thoughts. It helps to be occupied with God's word to speak it and meditate on it, just as the first psalm declares people blessed who meditate on God's law day and night. Certainly you will not release a stronger incense or other repellent against the devil than to be engaged by God's commandments and words and speak, sing, or think them. For this indeed is the true holy water and holy sign from which the devil runs and by which he may be driven away. Now for this reason alone you ought to gladly read, speak, think, and use these things, even if you had no other profit and fruit from them than driving away the devil and evil thoughts by doing so. For he cannot hear or endure God's word. God's word is not like some other silly babbling, like the story about Dietrich of Bern, for example, but as St. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God. Yes, indeed, it is the power of God that gives the devil burning pain and strengthens, comforts, and helps us beyond measure. In what need is there for more words? If I were to list all the profit and fruit of God's word, where would I get enough paper and time? The devil is called the master of a thousand arts, but what shall we call God's word, which drives away and brings to nothing this master of a thousand arts with all his arts and power? The word must indeed be the master of more than a hundred thousand arts. And shall we easily despise such power, profit, strength, and fruit, we especially who claim to be pastors and preachers? If so, not only should we have nothing given us to eat, but we should also be driven out, baited with dogs, and pelted with dung. We not only need all this every day, just as we need our daily bread, but we must also daily use it against the daily and unending attacks and lurking of the devil the master of a thousand arts. If these reasons were not enough to move us to read the Catechism daily, we should feel bound well enough by God's command alone. He solemnly commands us in Deuteronomy 6, 6-8, through 8, 
that we should always meditate on his precepts, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, and rising. We should have them before our eyes and in our hands as a constant mark and sign. Clearly, he did not solemnly require and command this without a purpose. For he knows our danger and need, as well as the constant and furious assaults and temptations of devils. He wants to warn, equip, and preserve us against them, as with a good armor against their fiery darts, and with good medicine against their evil infection and temptation. Oh, what mad senseless fools are we! While we must ever live and dwell among such mighty enemies as the devils, we still despise our weapons and defense, and we are too lazy to look at or think of them. What else are such proud, arrogant saints doing who are unwilling to read and study the Catechism daily? They think they are much more learned than God himself, with all his saints, angels, prophets, apostles, and all Christians. God himself is not ashamed to teach these things daily. He knows nothing better to teach. He always keeps teaching the same thing and does not take up anything new or different. All the saints know nothing better or different to learn and cannot finish learning this. Are we not the finest of all fellows to imagine that if we have once read or heard the catechism, we know it all and have no further need to read and learn? Can we finish learning in one hour what God himself cannot finish teaching? He is engaged in teaching this from the beginning to the end of the world. All prophets, together with all saints, have been busy learning it, have ever remained students, and must continue to be students. It must be true that whoever knows the Ten Commandments perfectly must know all the scriptures. So in all matters and cases, he can advise, help, comfort, judge, and decide both spiritual and temporal matters. Such a person must be qualified to sit in judgment over all doctrines, estates, spirits, laws, and whatever else is in the world. In what, indeed, is the entire book of Psalms, but thoughts and exercises upon the first commandment? Now, I know that such lazy bellies and arrogant spirits do not understand a single psalm, much less the entire Holy Scriptures, yet they pretend to know and despise the Catechism, which is a short and brief summary of all the Holy Scriptures. Therefore, I again beg all Christians, especially pastors and preachers, not to think themselves as doctors too soon and imagine that they know everything, for imagination like untrunk cloth will fall short of the measure. Instead, they should daily exercise them well in these studies and constantly use them. Furthermore, they should guard with all care and diligence against the poisonous infection and contentment and vain imagination, but steadily keep on reading, teaching, learning, pondering, and meditating on the Catechism. And they should not stop until they have tested and are sure that they have taught the devil to death and have become more learned than God himself and all his saints. If they show such diligence, then I will promise them, and they shall also see what fruit they will receive, and what excellent people God will make of them. So in due time they themselves will admit that the longer and more they study the Catechism, the less they know of it, and the more they will find to learn. Only then, as hungry and thirsty men, will they truly relish what now they cannot stand, because of great abundance and contentment. To this end, may God grant his grace. Amen. The Short Preface of Dr. Martin Luther This sermon is designed and undertaken to be an instruction for children and the simple folk. Therefore, in ancient times it was called in Greek catechism, i.e. instruction for children. It teaches what every Christian must know. So a person who does not know this catechism 
could not be counted as a Christian or be admitted to any sacrament, just as a mechanic who does not understand the rules and customs of his trade is expelled and considered incapable. Therefore, we must have the young learn well and fluently the parts of the catechism or instruction for children, diligently exercise themselves in them, and keep themselves busy with these parts. Therefore, it is the duty of every father of a family to question and examine his children and servants at least once a week, and see what they know or are learning from the catechism. And if they do not know the catechism, he should keep them learning it faithfully. For I well remember the time, indeed, even now it happens daily, that one finds rude old persons who knew nothing and still know nothing about these things. Yet they go to baptism and the Lord's Supper and use everything belonging to Christians, even though people who come to the Lord's Supper ought to know more and have a fuller understanding of all Christian doctrine than children and new scholars. However, for the common people, we are satisfied if they know the three parts. These have remained in Christendom from of old, though little of them has been taught and used correctly until both young and old who are called Christians and wish to be so are well trained in them and familiar with them. These parts are the following. First, God's Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall sanctify the holy day. You shall honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, and you may live long upon the earth. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his cattle or anything that is his. Second, the chief articles of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Third, the prayer, or Our Father, which Christ taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. These are the most necessary parts of Christian teaching that one should first learn to repeat word for word, and our children should be used to reciting them daily when they rise in the morning, when they sit down to their meals, and when they go to bed at night. And until they repeat them, they should not be given food or drink. Likewise, every head of a household is bound to do the same with his household, manservants and maidservants. He should not keep them in his house if they do not know these things or are unwilling to learn them. A person who is so rude and unruly as to be unwilling to learn these things is not to be tolerated. For in these three parts, everything that we have in the scriptures is included in short, plain, and simple terms. 
For the Holy Fathers or Apostles, whoever first taught these things, have summarized the Christian life, doctrine, wisdom, and art of Christians in this way. These parts speak, teach, and are focused on them. Now when these three parts are understood, a person also must know what to say about our sacraments, which Christ himself instituted, baptism, and the holy body and blood of Christ. They should know the texts that Matthew and Mark record at the close of their Gospels, where Christ said farewell to his disciples and sent them forth. Baptism Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is enough for a simple person to know the scriptures about baptism. In like manner, in short, simple words, they should also know the text of St. Paul about the other sacrament. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then we would have altogether five whole parts of Christian doctrine. These should be taught constantly in required learning for children. You should hear them recited word for word. You must not rely on the idea that the young people will learn and retain these things from the sermon alone. When these parts have been well learned, you may supplement and strengthen them by also setting before them some psalms or hymns which have been composed on these parts of the Catechism. Lead the young into the scriptures this way and make progress in them daily. However, it is not enough for them to understand and recite these parts according to the words alone. The young people should also be made to attend the preaching, especially during the time that is devoted to the Catechism. Then they may hear it explained and may learn to understand what every part contains, so that they can recite it in the way that they have heard it. Then, when asked, they may give a correct answer, so that preaching may not be useless and fruitless. For the reason we exercise such diligence in preaching the Catechism often is so that it may be taught to our youth, not in a high and clever way, but briefly and with the greatest simplicity. In this way it will enter the mind easily and be fixed in memory. Therefore, we shall now take up the above-mentioned articles one by one, and in the plainest manner possible, say as much as is necessary about them. Part 1. The First Commandment You shall have no other gods. What this means, you shall have me alone as your god. What is the meaning of this, and how is it to be understood? What does it mean to have a god, or what is a god? Answer. A god means that from which we are to expect all good, and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So to have a god is nothing other than trusting and believing him with the heart. I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both god and an idol. If your faith and trust is right, then your god is also true. On the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong, then you do not have the true god, for these two belong together, faith and god. Now, I say that whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. The purpose of this commandment is to require true faith and trust of the heart, 
which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone. It is like saying, See to it that you let me alone be your God, and never seek another. In other words, whatever you lack of good things, expect it from me. Look to me for it, and whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, crawl and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only do not let your heart cleave to or rest on any other. This point I must unfold more clearly. It may be understood and seen through ordinary counterexamples. Many a person thinks that he has God and everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them and boasts about them with such firmness and assurance as to care for no one. Such a person has a God by the name of mammon, namely money and possessions, on which he sets all of his heart. This is the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has no money doubts and is despondent, as though he knew of no God. For very few people can be found who are of good cheer, and who neither mourn nor complain if they lack mammon. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature right up to the grave. So too, whoever trusts and boasts that he has great skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, and honor also has a God. But it is not the true and only God. This truth reappears when you notice how arrogant, secure, and proud people are because of such possessions and how despondent they are when the possessions no longer exist or are withdrawn. Therefore, I repeat that the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. Besides, consider our blindness, which we have been practicing and doing under the papacy up until now. If anyone had a toothache, he fasted and honored St. Apollonia. If he was afraid of fire, he chose St. Lawrence as his helper. If he dreaded bubonic plague, he made a vow to St. Sebastian or Rocchio. There were a countless number of such abominations, where everyone chose his own saint, worshipped him, and called to him in distress. Here belong such people as sorcerers and magicians whose idolatry is most great. They make a deal with the devil in order that he may give them plenty of money or help them in love affairs, preserve their cattle, restore to them lost possessions, and so forth. For all such people place their trust elsewhere than in the true God. They look to him for nothing good, nor do they seek good from him. So you can easily understand what and how much this commandment requires. A person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one else. For to have a God, you can easily see, is not to take hold of him with our hands or to put him in a bag like money or to lock him in a chest like silver vessels. Instead, to have him means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him. To cling to him with the heart is nothing else than to trust in him entirely. For this reason, God wishes to turn us away from everything else that exists outside of him and to draw us to himself. For he is the only eternal good. It is as though he would say, whatever you have previously sought out from the saints or for whatever things you have trusted in money or anything else, expect it all from me. Think of me as the one who will help you and pour out upon you richly all good things. See, here you have the meaning of the true honor and worship of God. 
which pleases God, in which he commands under penalty of eternal wrath. The heart knows no other comfort or confidence than in him. It must not allow itself to be torn from him, but, for him, it must risk and disregard everything upon earth. On the other hand, you can easily see and sense how the world practices only false worship and idolatry, for no people have ever been so corrupt that they did not begin and continue some divine worship. Everyone has set up as his special god whatever he looked to for blessings, help, and comfort. For example, the heathen, who put their trust in power and dominion, elevated Jupiter as the supreme god. Others, who were bent on riches, happiness, or pleasure, and a life of ease, elevated Hercules, Mercury, Venus, or other gods. Pregnant women elevated Diana or Lucina, and so on. So everyone made his god that interest to which his heart was inclined. So even in the mind of the heathens, to have a god means to trust and believe. But their error is this, their trust is false and wrong. For their trust is not placed in the only god besides whom there is truly no God in heaven or upon earth. Therefore the heathen really make their self-invented notions and dreams of God an idol. Ultimately they put their trust in that which is nothing. So it is with all idolatry, for it happens not merely by erecting an image and worshipping it, but rather it happens in the heart. For the heart stands gaping at something else. It seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils. It neither cares for God nor looks to him for anything better than to believe that he is willing to help. The heart does not believe that whatever good it experiences comes from God. Besides this, there is also a false worship and extreme idolatry, which we have practiced up to now. This is also still common in the world. All churchly orders are founded on it. It concerns the conscience alone, which seeks help, consolation, and salvation in its own works. The conscience imagines that it can wrestle heaven away from God and thinks about how many requests it has made, how often it has fasted, celebrated Mass, and so on. Upon such things it depends and boasts, as though unwilling to receive anything from God as a gift. For it wants to earn or merit heaven with abundant works. The conscience acts as though God must serve us and is our debtor, and we are his liege lords. What is this but reducing God to an idol, indeed an apple god, and elevating and regarding ourselves as God? But this point is a little too clever and is not for young pupils. Let the following point be made the simple, then that they may well note and remember the meaning of this commandment. We are to trust in God alone and look to him and expect from him nothing but good, as from one who gives us body, life, food, drink, nourishment, health, protection, peace, and all necessaries of both temporal and eternal things. He also preserves us from misfortune, and if any evil befalls us, he delivers and rescues us. So it is God alone, as has been said well enough, from whom we receive all good and by whom we are delivered from all evil. So, I think, we Germans from ancient times name God, more elegantly and appropriately than any other language, from the word good, it is as though he were an eternal fountain that gushes forth abundantly, nothing but what is good. And from that fountain flows forth all that is and is called good. Even though we experience much good from other people, whatever we receive by God's command or arrangement is all received from God. For our parents and all rulers and everyone else 
with respect to his neighbor, have received from God the command that they should do to us all kinds of good. So we receive these blessings not from them, but through them, from God. For creatures are only the hands, channels, and means by which God gives all things. So he gives to the mother breasts and milk to offer to her child, and he gives corn and all kinds of produce from the earth for nourishment. None of these blessings could be produced by any creature of itself. So no one should expect to take or give anything except what God has commanded. Then it may be acknowledged as God's gift, and thanks may be rendered to him for it, as this commandment requires. For this reason also, the ways we receive good gifts through creatures are not to be rejected. Nor should we arrogantly seek other ways and means than what God has commanded. For that would be not receiving from God, but seeking for ourselves. Let everyone then see to it that he values this commandment, great and high above all things. Do not regard it as a joke. Ask and examine your heart diligently, and you will find whether it clings to God alone or not. If you have a heart that can expect of him nothing but what is good, especially in need and distress, and a heart that also renounces and forsakes everything that is not God, then you have the only true God. If, on the contrary, your heart clings to anything else from which it expects more good and help than from God, and if your heart does not take refuge in him, but flees from him when in trouble, then you have an idol, another God. God will not have this commandment thrown to the winds. He will most strictly enforce it in order that this may be known, that he has added a a terrible threat and b a beautiful comforting promise. This promise is also to be taught and impressed upon the young people that they may take it to heart and hold it. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These words relate to all the commandments, as we shall learn later, but they are joined to this chief commandment because it is most important that people get their thinking straight first. For where the head is right, the whole life must be right, and vice versa. Learn, therefore, from these words how angry God is with those who trust in anything but him. And again, learn how good and gracious he is to those who trust and believe in him alone with their whole heart. His anger does not stop until the fourth generation of those who hate him. He says this so that you will not live in such security and commit yourself to chance, like people with brute hearts who think that it makes no difference how they live. On the other hand, his blessing and goodness reach many thousands. He is a God who will not overlook that people turn from him. He will not stop being angry until the fourth generation, even until they are utterly exterminated. Therefore, he is to be feared and not to be despised. He has also made this known in all history, as the scriptures abundantly show and daily experience still teaches. For from the beginning, he has utterly uprooted all idolatry. Because of idolatry, he has uprooted both heathen and people and Jewish people. To this day, he overthrows all false worship, so that all who remain therein must finally perish. Proud, powerful, and rich men of the world, Sardanapalians and Phalarides, who surpass even the Persians in wealth, are still to be found. They boast defiantly of their mammon. They utterly disregard whether God is angry at them or smiles on them. They dare to withstand his wrath, yet they shall not succeed. Before they are aware of it, they shall be wrecked. 
with all in which they trusted. All others have perished like this who have thought themselves more secure or powerful. Such hardheads imagine that God overlooks and allows them to rest in security, or that he is entirely ignorant or cares nothing about such matters. Therefore God must deal a smashing blow and punish them, so that he cannot forget their sin unto their children's children. In that way, everyone may take note and see that this is no joke to him. These are the people he means when he says, those who hate me, namely, those who persist in their defiance and pride. Whatever is preached or said to them, they will not listen. When they are rebuked, in order that they may learn to know themselves and make amends before the punishment begins, they become mad and foolish. They rightly deserve wrath, as we see daily in bishops and princes now. But as terrible as these threatenings are, so much more powerful is the consolation in the promise. For those who cling to God alone should be sure that he will show them mercy. In other words, he will show them pure goodness and blessing, not only for themselves but also to their children and their children's children, even to the thousandth generation and beyond that. This ought certainly to move and impel us to risk our hearts in all confidence with God, if we wish all temporal and eternal good. For the Supreme Majesty makes such outstanding offers and presents such heartfelt encouragements and such rich promises. Therefore, let everyone seriously take this passage to heart, lest it be regarded as though a man had spoken it. For you, it is a question of eternal blessing, happiness, and salvation, or of eternal wrath, misery, and woe. What more would you have or desire than that God so kindly promising to be yours with every blessing and to protect and help you in all need? But unfortunately, here is the failure. The world believes none of this, nor regards it as God's word. For the world sees that those who trust in God and not in mammon suffer care and want, and that the devil opposes and resists them. They don't have money or favor or honor and besides can scarcely support life. On the other hand, those who serve mammon have power, favor, honor, possessions, and every comfort in the eyes of the world. For this reason, these words must be understood to speak against the appearance of such things. And we must consider that they do not lie or deceive, but must come true. Reflect for yourself or investigate and tell me, those who have used all their care and diligence to gather great possessions and wealth, what have they finally gained? You will find that they have wasted their toil and labor, or even though they have amassed great treasures, they have been dispersed and scattered. So they themselves have never found happiness in their wealth, and afterward it never reached the third generation. You will find plenty of examples in all histories, also in the memory of aged and experienced people. Just watch and ponder them. Saul was a great king, chosen by God and a godly man, but when he was established on his throne, he let his heart wander from God and put his trust in his crown and power. Then he had to perish with all that he had, so that not even his children remained. David, on the other hand, was a poor, despised man, hunted down and chased, so that he did not feel his life was secure anywhere. Yet he had to survive in spite of Saul and become king. For these words of the promise had to abide and come true, since God cannot lie or deceive. Just let not the devil and the world deceive you with their show, which indeed remains for a time, but finally is nothing. Let us then learn well the first commandment, that we may see how God will not tolerate overconfidence, nor any trust in any other object. 
We will see how he requires nothing greater from us than confidence from the heart for everything good. Then we may live right and straightforward and use all the blessings that God gives, just as a shoemaker uses his needle, awl, and thread for work and then lays them aside. Or we may behave like a traveler, using an inn, food, and bed, only to meet his present need. Each person may do this in his calling, according to God's order, and without allowing any of these things to be his lord or idol. This is enough about the first commandment, which we have had to explain at length, since it is of chief importance. For as said earlier, where the heart is rightly set toward God, and this commandment is observed, all other commandments follow. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The first commandment has instructed the heart and taught the faith. This commandment now leads us forward and directs the mouth and tongue to God. For the first things that spring from the heart and show themselves are words. I have taught above how to answer the question, what does it mean to have a God? Now you must simply learn to understand the meaning of this commandment and all the commandments and to apply it to yourself. If someone now asks, how do you understand the second commandment, or what is meant by taking God's name in vain or misusing God's name, answer briefly in this way. It means misusing God's name when we call upon the Lord, no matter how, in order to deceive or do wrong of any kind. Therefore, this commandment makes this point. God's name must not be appealed to falsely or taken upon the lips while the heart knows well enough or should know that the truth of the matter is different. This is what happens with people who take oaths in court, where one side lies against the other. For God's name cannot be misused worse than for the support of falsehood and deceit. Let this remain the exact German and simplest meaning of this commandment. From this, everyone can easily see when and in how many ways God's name is misused, although it is impossible to list all its misuses. But to explain this in a few words, all misuse of the divine name happens first in worldly business and in matters that concern money, possessions, and honor. This applies publicly in court, in the market, or wherever else people make false oaths in God's name or pledge their souls in any matter. This is especially common in marriage affairs, where two go and secretly get engaged to one another and afterward break their engagement. But the greatest abuse occurs in spiritual matters. These have to do with the conscience when false preachers rise up and offer their lying vanities as God's word. Look, all this is dressing up oneself with God's name, or making a pretty show, or claiming to be right. This is true whether it happens in common worldly business or in higher refined matters of faith and doctrine. Blasphemers also belong with liars. I mean not just the ordinary blasphemers, well known to everyone who disgrace God's name without fear. These are not for us to discipline, but for the hangman. I also mean those who publicly disgrace the truth and God's word and hand it over to the devil. There is now no need to speak about this further. Here, then, let us learn and take to heart the great importance of this commandment. Then, with all diligence, we may guard against and dread every misuse of the holy name as the greatest sin that can be committed outwardly. For to lie and to deceive in itself is a great sin. But such a sin gets even worse when we try to justify our lie and seek to confirm it by calling on God's name and using his name as a cloak for shame, so that from a single lie a double lie results. No. 
many lies. For this reason, too, God has added a solemn threat to this commandment, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This means that this sin shall not be pardoned for anyone or go unpunished, for just as he will not fail to avenge if anyone turns his heart from him, so he will also not let his name be used to dress up a lie. Now, unfortunately, this sin is a common plague in all the world. There are so few people who do not use God's name for purposes of lying and all wickedness in contrast to those who trust in God alone with their heart. By nature, we have all within us this beautiful virtue that whoever has committed a wrong would like to cover up and adorn his disgrace so that no one may see it or know it. No one is so bold as to boast to all the world of the wickedness he has done. All wish to act by stealth and without anyone being aware of what they do. So if anyone is caught sinning, God's name is dragged into the affair and must make the wickedness look like godliness and the shame like honor. This is the common way of the world, which has covered all lands like a great flood. So we get what we seek and deserve as our reward epidemics, wars, famines, raging fires, floods, wayward wives, children, servants, and all sorts of filth. Where else should such misery come from? It is still a great mercy that the earth bears and supports us. Therefore, above all things, our young people should have this second commandment earnestly pressed upon them. They should be trained to hold this and the first commandment in high regard, and whenever they sin, we must at once be after them with the rod. We must hold the commandment before them and constantly teach it, so that we bring them up not only with punishment but also in reverence and fear of God. Now if you understand what it means to take God's name in vain, in some it means a to use his name simply for purposes of falsehood, b to assert in God's name something that is not true, or c to curse, swear, use spells, and in short to practice whatever wickedness one may. Besides this, you must also know how to use God's name rightly. For when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he wants us to understand at the same time that his name is to be used properly. For his name has been revealed and given to us so that it may be of constant use and profit. So it is natural to conclude that since this commandment forbids using the holy name for falsehood or wickedness, we are, on the other hand, commanded to use his name for truth and for all good like when someone takes an oath truthfully when it is needed and it is demanded. This commandment also applies to right teaching and to calling on his name in trouble or praising and thanking him in prosperity and so on. All of this is summed up and commanded in Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. For all this is bringing God's name to the service of truth and using it in a blessed way. In this way, his name is hallowed as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Now you have the sum of the entire commandment explained. With this understanding, the question that has troubled many teachers has been easily solved. Why is swearing prohibited in the gospel, and yet Christ, St. Paul, and other saints often swore? The explanation is briefly this. We are not to swear in support of evil, that is, to support falsehood or to swear when there is no need or use, but we should swear for the support of good and the advantage of our neighbor. For such swearing is truly a good work by which God is praised, truth and right are established, falsehood is refuted, peace is made among men, obedience is rendered, and quarrels are settled. 
for in this way God himself intervenes and separates right and wrong, good and evil. If one party swears falsely, he lives under this judgment. He shall not escape punishment. Even if this judgment is delayed a long time, he shall not succeed. So everything he may gain from his falsehood will slip out of his hands, and he will never enjoy it. I have seen this in the case of many who perjured themselves in their wedding vows. They have never had a happy hour or a healthy day, and so perished miserably in body, soul, and possessions. Therefore I advise and exhort, as before, that with warning and threatening, restraint and punishment, the children should be trained early to shun falsehood. They should especially avoid the use of God's name to support falsehood. For where children are allowed to do as they please, no good will result. This is clear even now. The world is worse than it ever had been, and there is no government, no obedience, no loyalty, no faith, but only daring, unbridled people. No teaching or reproof helps them. All this is God's wrath and punishment for such lewd contempt of this commandment. On the other hand, children should be constantly urged and moved to honor God's name and to have it always upon their lips for everything that may happen to them or come to their notice. For that is the true honor of his name, to look to it and call upon it in all consolation. Then, as we have heard in the first commandment, the heart by faith gives God the honor due him first. Afterward, the lips give him honor by confession. This is also a blessed and useful habit and very effective against the devil. He is ever around us and lies in wait to bring us into sin and shame, disaster and trouble. But he hates to hear God's name and cannot remain long where it is spoken and called upon from the heart. Indeed, many terrible and shocking disasters would fall upon us if God did not preserve us by our calling upon his name. I have tried it myself. I learned by experience that often sudden and great suffering was immediately averted and removed by calling on God. To confuse the devil, I say, we should always have this holy name in our mouth so that the devil may not be able to injure us as he wishes. It is also useful that we form the habit of daily commending ourselves to God with soul and body, wife, children, servants, and all that we have against every need that may arise. So also the blessing and thanksgiving at meals and other prayers, morning and evening, have begun and remained in use. Likewise, children should continue to cross themselves when anything monstrous or terrible is seen or heard. They can shout, Lord God, protect us, help us, dear Lord Jesus, and such. Also, if anyone meets with unexpected good fortune, however trivial, he says, God be praised and thanked, or God has bestowed this on me, and so on, just as the children used to learn to fast and to pray to St. Nicholas and other saints before. This would be more pleasing and acceptable to God than all monasticism and Carthusian acts of holiness. Look, we could train our youth this way, in a childlike way, and playfully in the fear and honor of God. Then the first and second commandments might be well kept and in constant practice. Then some good might take root, spring up, and bear fruit. People would grow up whom an entire land might relish and enjoy. In addition, this would be the true way to bring up children well as long as they could be trained with kindness and delight. For children, who must be forced with rods and blows, will not develop into a good generation. At best, they will remain godly under such treatment only as long as the rod is upon their backs. But, teaching the commandments in a childlike and playful way spreads its roots in the heart, so that children fear God more than rods and clubs.
I say with such simplicity for the sake of the young, that it may penetrate their minds. For we are preaching to children, so we must also talk like them. In this way we would prevent the abuse of the divine name and teach the right use. This should happen not only in words, but also in practice in life. Then we may know God is well pleased with this, and will as richly reward good use of his name, as he will terribly punish the abuse. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.